1: folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again today from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 452 of the Survival Podcast, and uh, what we're going to have today is a special guest on Ron Hood, legendary survival trainer and expert. we will be joining us in just a minute, but before we uh, bring him on to chat with us, I want to go ahead and take care of our uh, housekeeping like we always do. Uh, It is June tenth, two 2010, and our sponsors of the day today are MERSradio.com. First of all, actually, MERS-radio.com. What are MERS radios? Well, they're a great way to uh, add an additional communications medium to your home without any kind of a license. It's an unlicensed technology, so that means anybody can have it. Uh, But not a lot of people use it, really, so it gives you a little bit of a privacy uh, over things like the GMRS and family uh, radio frequencies, and things that you find in the store. But what's really cool about them is the way that they blend in with a security system. For instance, I have multiple motion detectors on my property and and that broken up into sectors. And if there's any motion in one of those sectors, it alerts the radios and the base station. So it's a great way to bridge that together. And uh, Rob over there will help you out with any questions you have, so check out MERS-radio.com. Second sponsor of the day today is Safe Castle Royal. Uh, Safe Castle is the place to find everything you can need for your prepping needs uh, they also have an outstanding uh, discount membership for $29 one time your entire life. You pay that, and you get a huge discount on just about everything they sell uh, from that point forward and forever. There's no renewal on it. And remember, if you're a member of the Survival Podcast Members Support Brigade, you get that discount membership absolutely free. Uh, but do check out Safe Castle Royal, everything from 12-volt products to long-term storage food and everything in between you'll find there. And... Uh, run by a really great guy that's a good friend of mine and actually a good friend of our special guests today, too. And uh, we'll take care of you if anything ever does happen to hiccup or go wrong, because we all know that can happen. Our server issues this week have shown us that. Uh, Next, I want to remind you, do connect with us on all our social media, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and the forum. I am really starting to understand Facebook, folks. It took me a while. I guess I'm an older guy or something. But uh, I put up a request uh, yesterday saying, hey, could you guys give me some suggestions for the next show? In, like, 25 minutes, I had, like, 40 responses. So, okay, I get it now. Uh, I'll try to be better about connecting with you on Facebook, but you connect back to me, uh, Twitter as well, and the YouTube channel's growing. I do apologize for not getting the videos up. Uh, Yesterday, that I promised you on controlling blight uh, on tomato plants. Uh, It rained yesterday for the first time in three weeks, and rule number one with blight control, don't touch stuff when it's wet. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only to members, uh, including uh, discounts from about 20 supporting uh, vendors. You'll get about $100 worth of free ebooks, You'll get 20 videos by me that are available nowhere else and you'll be supporting the show at about 20 cents an episode. And with that, we've gone ahead and knocked this out quick, because I do have our special guest hanging on. Again, our special guest today is Ron Hood of Survival.com. Ron, thanks for being with us today on the Survival Podcast.
0: Hey, thanks for having me, Jack. It's good to hear you again.
1: You know, Ron, it's good to have you back on the show, and, and we just hung out for a while. We've got to do that again. But for those that may not know you, we had you on before. We did a long kind of background on you, but just a synopsis this time you have this interesting history in the survival industry. So, could you tell folks uh that didn't hear the previous uh episode maybe in 5 minutes or less about your background and and, and uh how you came to be the survival instructor uh and involved in the industry the way you are today. Yeah,
0: Jack, how do you do that, man? You just keep on going. You're good. <laughs> yeah, I almost remember when we were sitting around that campfire talking. Yeah, let's see here. So you want a synopsis. Uh well, a long time ago when I was just a little boy, my dad took me out camping and it was pretty good, but I got lost. So after I got lost and he refound me, I decided that I'd better learn something about being out there and uh over the years, um I, I worked on it as a kid. Uh, somewhere around nineteen sixty three, I think it was June, I was listening to a song called Puff the Magic Dragon and uh You know, lives by the sea and all that good stuff. And um, something in there told me that I better go out and join the army. I don't know what it was, but I did. (laughs) I joined the U.S. Army, and um, uh, so I wasn't qualified to walk around uh, just crazy style. I was more qualified to sneak information from people, so they put me in military intelligence, an outfit called the Army Security Agency. And um, actually, one of your sponsors is uh, was a member of that as well. Yeah, and we security agency was a signal intelligence division basically, and we set up our monitors all around the world in nasty places and received information. And so, um, since we were in these locations, we got an opportunity to live with indigenous people and learn some of their survival techniques. I was assigned to to Turkey for 11 months and 10 days. I counted every one of them, <laughs> and. Um, Got a chance to work out with the uh, with the Kurds and some of the Askari, the Turk uh, soldiers, and uh, learned some of their techniques. And then they sent me over to Vietnam. Spent uh, just about a year and a half there, and most of that time was moving around the country in a different location doing what I had to do. And um, so I had an opportunity to work with the uh, Montagnard tribes and some of the some of the other people living out there, including the um, oh I don't know just just their military and uh good stuff you know i learned a lot of different things came back to the state said whoa what am i going to do with these skills i mean what can i do i can steal information or i can live off the land and living off the land (laughs) seemed like a good thing to do in the 60s so um started on that i ended up uh going to college getting a degree and during that time i was teaching uh outdoor survival programs for free at uh, a thing called experimental college i was big in those days and so i kind of Got it going. It was um, a very, very popular program. Ran a couple hundred people every six months through it. And then the university offered me an opportunity to teach there for unaccredited courses which had not been developed yet. So I developed some outdoor survival high-risk activity courses for them, and uh, they put me to work. So and, and for
1: folks that might not know n- n- what, this, what, what university was that?
0: Oh, I taught at two universities. I taught at UCLA for eight years. And at Cal State University Northridge for almost 20.
1: So you were you're teaching survival skills to uh, hippies. <laughs> yeah, that was it. <laughs> it.
0: It wasn't bad in the beginning, but they got a little bit more conservative as things moved on, you know. Um, in the very beginning, those trips were, um, were basically a riot. You know, you run up there with your tie dyes and look around for food. And uh, later on, it became much more formal. But um, yeah, it was, it was good times. It was good times and uh, spent about every summer up there on, on extended programs. Uh, generally run about six or seven, nine-day survival courses throughout the summer. They'd be kind of back-to-back, go up there on a Friday and come back out on a Sunday and then go home, stay home for four days and go back up and did that all summer long. It was great. So I did that, and I worked for the uh, trainer in, uh, in Chile for a while for the Chileno Armed Forces, teaching the mountain troops survival skills and so it's been kind of like that throughout my life good times very Better cool for
1: yeah yeah that's kind of how I'm feeling about the things I do now and, and you have an entire series of DVDs on learning these different skills and I guess I mean you started doing this before there really I mean there was an internet but you know Al Gore hadn't fully invented it yet or whatever yeah, so yeah, he was on. so it, it wasn't really the, the form that it is now and I guess now we have people doing podcasts like I do in forums like yours and we're sharing these skills all over the world but when when you did that the only way you could really reach that many people was through video so you guys started putting uh, videos together when did you do your first uh, survival themed video uh, for training on skills oh gosh.
0: A good question. I think it was 1996. We did the very first one. They had just come out with a, a digital camera. Uh, you know, Nowadays, of course, those things are commonplace, but this was the very, very first one. Sure. And uh, we picked up one of those things, and there was no real way to edit. We could shoot all we wanted, but there wasn't <laughs> any good way to edit. So we kind of just, it's called linear editing. In other words, we take a scene and copy it onto something else, and we would master these things onto a super VHS tape. Cool. And, you know, there would be like a little bit of a generational loss each time because from that would come the DHS tapes themselves. And, um, of course, we've remastered all of the videos now onto DVD, so they're lossless. You know, there's no, no real change in quality. And um, the, the, the technology has improved the ability to transmit information. You know, better cameras, better editing systems, better ways of displaying information. It's great. And I just love technology.
1: You know, speaking of technology, you kind of grabbed onto it as an early adopter. You were doing these videos and VHS, and, you know, I remember when a VCR was like 400 bucks, and now you can get, if you still, it's hard to even find one, but I remember for a while you could buy a VCR for like $29. Um, but then when the Internet came along, you kind of jumped right on board with that. You set up one of... Uh, what I think is the best forums out there on uh, survival and and survival skills. And you kind of have that home there at survival.com. Could you tell us a little bit about that site and how it developed? Sure.
0: Uh, That was probably one of the earlier projects. I I was working on a doctoral program uh, doing some studies on um, managers for information systems. I guess that's the easiest way to to put it. And um, the Internet was just becoming something. Before that, there were things called bulletin board systems or take your modem you'd dial up and beep, beep, and it would roar at you for a while until it made a connection and it would transmit uh, at a speed called 300 baud. Nobody knows what that is anymore.
1: I remember. (laughs) You bet you do. I remember Uh, me and my Commodore 128D, man. We were on all the boards.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you had a good one. I I had a 64. (laughs) Wow. We go back. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, you could watch the letters crawl across the screen. Uh, There was no possibility of sending a picture. No. But uh, that was when they were first starting to open up the .com uh, addresses on the Internet. When that first came up, I thought, survival, that's it. I had the survival uh, license plate at the time, so I thought, well, gee, I should get survival.com, so I bought that. And um, it, was, it was remarkably expensive back in those days to have a website. It was maybe, I guess, it was two or $300 a month to keep this thing running and uh why you know it, it hurt but we put it up there and it was public service thing pretty much just to get uh, the word out about the videos and to teach people about survival skills and a lot of those pages are still on survival.com they're they've been there for what is it about 18 years now
1: something. wow wow
0: yeah they're they, we update them now and then you know change the graphics on them get rid of some of the, the, the funky pictures but uh it's um it's still the same information because survival doesn't change you know it's Sure, it's a set of skills, a skill set that's been around for tens of thousands of years, and um, hell, why change it? You know, it's all going to be the same. Everybody keeps reinventing the same thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, we all we have to eat, we have to shelter ourselves, we have to breathe oxygen. Uh, we have to protect and defend ourselves, and, and those core skills kind of stay the same no matter what changes. we get. And technology, like you and I are tech guys. We like technology, and it's cool, and we get new gadgets and things in, but the core, the core stuff's the same, right? I mean, if you freeze to death, you're dead.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, who cares if you've got an iPad or something, you know? It's cold out You're dead.
1: And my like, GPSs are cool. I love my GPS. I have several of them. I love them, especially for fishing, to find spots on a lake. But if you don't know how to navigate, and I've been out where I wasn't really dependent on my GPS, but just for one reason or another, it doesn't work. And it, it might be a good idea to know how to navigate your ass home again uh, without the use of that little electronic device, right?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And
1: even compasses...
0: Um, because the skills are so deep, there's a lot of depth to these skills. They go back thousands and thousands of years. You can navigate with just sticks. Uh, we worked out ways, uh, some of the ancient ways, of locating yourself on the surface of a globe. Uh, believe it or not, they did that back in the Greek times. But um, there are uh, tools that, that people used to navigate the oceans that were based on just bronze. You know, There wasn't anything magnetic about mm-hmm. them. And um, it's it's way cool to go back to some of these ancient to these old techniques anyway, and, and re refigure them. Just recently, I was hired by the U.S. Marine Corps to take a uh, to run a um, survival instructor's training course up in the mountains in Bridgeport, California, at the Marine Corps Mountain Warfare Center. So I took a group of nine uh, Marine snipers up there, and uh, these are some tough guys. I got to tell you, these guys are tough and very skilled in outdoor uh, techniques. But uh, we went up there, and um, uh, we worked out our location just using two pieces of brass.
1: That's awesome.
0: And, uh, you know, it's, it's very cool to be able to do that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and you could do things that sophisticated, or you, as you were talking about with a couple sticks, cool things like uh, ottoman sun compass. It'll give you, uh, you know, an east-west line, and once you have that, you can kind of figure out the other two directions from there as long as you're uh, not directionally dyslexic. Um, you've got some great videos that people can learn how to do these things with. Um, they're available at your website as right, right as well, right?
0: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the navigation stuff is in Volume Four, um, okay. and that that covers a lot of the a lot of the primitive stuff, and it, it'll definitely get you out of the, out of a troubled spot. You know, if your GPS goes flat or, or the EMP pulse or something like that, it will um, it'll still work as long as that sun's shining or you've got something to diffuse some light. You can uh, you can figure out directions.
1: Very cool. So, hey, uh, we just kind of got together for a little bit and uh, killed some gin and scotch uh, down at (laughs) that spring thing, which is a a, a deal that you guys have for your forum. Uh, You want to tell folks a little bit about why you guys do the get-togethers on the forum? I mean, everybody knows each other virtually, Uh, but you drove all the way from the end of the earth, uh, also known as as, uh, Idaho, down here to uh, Texas. And uh, you did that to come see people why, you know could you talk about a little bit why that's important? We have all these virtual relationships to actually press palms and and build community beyond your backyard when it comes to prepping and things like that because you I mean you don't know where you're going to be when something goes wrong right that's right
0: that's right yeah it's good to know people to know their faces because the personalities online are different than the ones that they that they have in real life and um, We've been doing things like this for years. I, I think probably since the very first forum, there were little get-togethers here and there, and then it became more and more official. And they were called uh, hoodlum get-togethers because uh, our our group is called the hoodlums. And um, we we would get together in, in different places around the country. And I wasn't always there. You know, Karen and I didn't make all those things. We made a few of them, but um, the folks would get together, and then there'd be a report on the on the forum, and we'd see pictures, and and pretty soon you begin to associate a face you know with a with a name like Stalking Bear or something like that who the hell yeah. is Stalking Bear <laughs> you see who it is you go alright that's Stalking Bear you know and now it makes some sense and you're happy um, but the Texas thing was is kind of the premier get together that's um, uh, there are a lot of good folks in Texas I'll tell you that a lot of good hoodlums there and they get together I've been getting together probably for three years before the first time I went which was a couple of years ago and um, it was so nice to meet these people, and I felt so at home that Karen and I came at the very next one the following year, and uh, Karen and I and my son, Jesse, and, um, you know, it's, it's a 5,000-mile drive.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a long way.
0: But that, that's how valuable these people are as friends. You know, you, things like that are, are minor when you're thinking about establishing friendships and communicating about your real goals and, and so forth. And um, it's just an awesome thing, you know. And, good and people.
1: Go and, and five thousand miles there in that motorhome, would you get about a mile to the gallon? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, it, that's really funny, but um, well, maybe not. Maybe six. Uh, the the uh, this has got the big Cummins, so oh, okay. so the, the diesel pusher. Okay. Got the diesel engine in it, so we uh, on a on a nice clear road without any headwinds or weird stuff going on can get twelve to thirteen. Cool. And, um, that's with almost thirty thousand pounds of machine above, so Wow
1: that's that's pretty good. Yeah, I yeah, took it's... your advice after we met down there and uh upgraded the truck. I picked up a Ford F three fifty uh super duty and uh believe it or not, even without towing it gets better mileage than my Dodge did.
0: Oh I bet, yeah. Yeah, which which engine did you get in that? Uh
1: it's the six the six liter uh diesel. All right, yeah. 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 you
0: you're gonna be very happy with that. <laughs> Got so, that thing.
1: I got about eighteen uh the last time I went to Arkansas with it, without that was without towing anything, but I, I was I was pretty daggone happy with that. It's a it's a fairly large truck. <laughs> yeah, My wife's is. afraid to even drive it. But uh, but hey, let's uh let's chat about this new magazine you've got out. The second uh the second edition's about to come out in it. Uh, you were kind enough to offer me a, a spot in it to, as a writer, uh, but can you tell people a little about your magazine? What's it, what, what is it called? What's its goal? What are, what are you trying to get across?
0: Sure, absolutely, be happy to tell you about that. We've um, well, it's called Survival Quarterly or SQ. That's in here, uh, Quebec uh, magazine. And um, if you want to see a little bit about it, you can go to survivalq. dot com and uh just click enter there and you can see some of the information about it and you can, of course um, sign up for a subscription or whatever. But the magazine is designed to be a, a linear um, display, I guess you could say, of survival skills, survival and living skills. And by linear what I mean is that when this series of, of magazines is I don't know if it'll ever be complete, but if it was a if it was completed, every one of these uh, issues would be a something like a large chapter in a book. And each one is about a specific topic. Uh, for instance, the very, very first one that we put out was about fire. So issue number one is fire, and if you wanted to find out about fire-making techniques or how to keep a fire going or just about anything related to that topic, then um, you would go to issue number one. You'd also find in that issue information about firearms, uh, blades, uh, and, and a variety of other topics because we want to, people's interest there's cooking articles in there and, and so on and so forth we've, we've got tales from the trails which is information uh, just basically personal stories and um, a lot of fun stuff to read you know, we try to keep it interesting and amusing that's one of the, the important parts of transmitting information is if you keep it fun people will remember it if it's really boring didactic you're going to fall asleep. You know, here's a new acronym for you to remember, Birth Pride, you know. What the does that mean, Burst Pride? <laughs> it just, so um, we, we stay away from that, the hard stuff like that. I, I don't want anything to remember. I want it to be kind of um, automatic when it comes out. At any rate, issue number one is about fire. Number two is about shelter, and that was just printed, and it's out now in the mail. And um, it's fantastic. We've got some really great writers in there. Including yourself,
1: thank was, you.
0: Thank you for gracing us with that. That there was a lot of good information in that. and I've, um, I've taken to uh, to considering how we're going to apply what you've got in there, which that, of course, is what we're after here. Is you know we want people to apply the information. Mm-hmm. And, Jack, in Jack, I got a question for you. Sure. Have you ever heard of, of chia?
1: Chia? Yeah, chia. Like a chia pet? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like a chia pet. <laughs> I don't know, man. No, I don't think so. Okay, yeah, it's, it's a it's
0: kind of a regional plant. It's more of a west coast plant, but chia seeds are terrific, and they're they're one of those wild plants that you can kind of cultivate or uh, support, you know, during their, their lifespans. And what they what they're good for is uh, they have little tiny seeds on them, Like you see on a chia. pet. Uh-huh. and you can um, you can uh, grow the seeds if you want to make more plants, or you could just sprout them and eat the sprouts. They're delicious. They're they're super wow. wholesome. Um, they've got a lot of omega three uh, omega three fats in them. I believe um, years ago they were used uh, actually all the way through Roman wars and Greek wars and so forth. They were used in, in uh, wounds as a poultice. But the um, if you take one of the little tiny seeds and put it in the corner of your eye, it excretes when uh, I excrete. That's not a good idea to say that word. <laughs> <laughs> it just excreted my damn eye. Look at that old crap. of a... oh. Anyway, there's um uh, it it there's this Oh, mucilage, I guess you could think. Kind of gotcha. Lime that crawls across your eye, and it soothes the eye. So if you've been walking in the dust or looking into smoke or whatever, it makes the eye feel better, and then the thing swells and pops out.
1: Now that I'm looking it up here online, I see there's uh, tremendous amounts of it available, and it's got a lot of uh, health benefits. I'll have to get some of that going in the backyard and see how it does in this, uh, this godforsaken, hellacious climate down here. <laughs> But cool. I, I'm, see, that's why we have guys like you on. We learn new things. And on the magazine, though, like I mean, just to be blunt. You've like worked your ass off for forty five years in this industry. Uh, it, 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 not not pumping your head up or anything. You've really shaped a lot of what's out there today. Um, and it's a lot of freaking work to put out a magazine. I know how much work it is to put out an audio file every day. To put out a magazine and deal with people like me that miss their deadlines and things—that's a pain in the ass. <laughs> so, so what? You know, what what did you see as far as, as as something new that needed to be done that made you willing to commit to that amount of work? At you know, at this point where you really don't have to do it, uh, it's got there's got to be some bit of a labor of love in there, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah,
0: we wouldn't take on this much work if there wasn't some sort of a a joy to be had from it, and the service that we're offering as well. Um, I could go back a few years. There was a, a magazine out. It was um, uh, it's called um, American Survival Guide. Sorry, I had, a, I had a little aphasia there, the moment when the brain shut down.
1: Um, <laughs>
0: American survival I have
1: about guide. six a day. When I get to seven, I'm going to see a doctor about it.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, Don't worry about it. It'll get better. they <laughs> just start repeating If yourself. you forget
1: enough, you won't remember you forgot
0: yeah, that's it. You <laughs> meet new people all the time. Uh, oh Jesus. I can't tell you how it gets. But uh, anyway, the um uh American Survival Guide was out years ago and it was very popular, wildly popular. It had a lot of a lot of good core information for people who were interested in both urban and uh, wilderness survival skills. And um, you know, a good variety of, of articles, uh like I, like we have, sort of laid everything from cooking to fighting to survival skills, and um, it, uh, it was killed. I mean, it, uh, while it was very, very popular economically and by the, in terms of readership, the magazine was sold to somebody who uh, didn't see the vision that they had. And within about six months of the time they bought the magazine, it died. So, uh, and, and people have been missing it for a long time. And we are kind of in that mold is of course our own flavor on it, and um, and we do, we worked hard to get this to be a a beautiful shiny glossy magazine. You know, we want this thing to be a. a, a an outstanding example.
1: Well, it's definitely beautifully produced. It's probably one of the best produced magazines I've ever seen in any niche. But as an entrepreneur, because I'm, you know, that's one of my, my facets beyond just the industry itself is this entrepreneurism and business development. You just used a word that I'm always fascinated by and I always want to hear about, and that's vision. Could you tell folks kind of what your vision for Survival Quarterly really is, what you want it to become?
0: I want it to be the go-to source for information about urban and wilderness survival, about general living skills, um, and ways to connect with other professionals in this field. Now, I, I hesitate to use the word um, uh, expert. For some reason, you know, that's kind of abused, like the word hero. Hey, you're a hero, hero. <laughs> like me, you know. It's you know, uh, Who cares about those words? It's, what yeah. it is is there are professionals that people like you and I we're professionals in our field. We've got lots of years doing this stuff. I know that you're very, very professional in all the things that you've been doing. You know, having met with you in person, had a few drinks, I've heard you slur your way through some profound concepts. <laughs> 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 and enjoy every minute of it, man. I came away uh. learning a lot, you know, and that's what this is about. We we learn from these people. Um, as an example, um, oh, let's see, David Westcott, are you familiar with that name? Yeah. David is, for those of you who don't know, David is the man who put together um, Rabbit Stick and Winter Count. They're two giant primitive skills uh, get togethers that are held every year. And um, David is an an absolute professional in in all of the wilderness skills. He's he's just amazing. But he he put together a standout article on a, a really cool. Uh, shelter. I, I won't give away how it's made or anything, but it's an atomic shelter. This thing is great. weighs about two pounds. Awesome. And, uh, you could you could sleep out in arctic conditions with this thing if you do it properly. It's beautiful.
1: That's very cool. And I know what you mean about experts, because like, I'll bring you on. I'll be like, we have legendary survival expert Ron Hood on, and, and I have no problem calling you an expert. Someone calls me an expert, and I'm like, hey, hold, hold, hold up. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I, I'm I don't know. trying to help people here. And I, I think that that's, that's something unique to, I think, the, the, the people that really view what we do in this industry as kind of a servant nature to help people. That I don't care who it is. I just had, uh, you know, we're both friends with Dave Canterbury. And he's got this new show coming out on Discovery. And uh, he called me and I was at the grocery store and he said, I apologize for getting you at the store. And I said, that's all right, Dave, I'm talking to a TV star uh, at the grocery store. That's cool. And he was just totally put off. He's like, no, 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 don't start calling me that crap, you know. And I think that we see that, like the gentleman you just mentioned, uh, and, and all of the people that seem that have been in this industry, you know, not people that show up and they're, they're there for five minutes and gone, but the people that have been here and, and helped people for years all seem to have a certain amount of humility. And I guess it's because when you look at a topic like survival, you realize that no matter how much you think you know, that big world can still kick your ass. And and, and it's, a, it's a humbling thing, and I guess maybe it keeps the industry a little bit humble.
0: Uh, yeah, I think you put your finger on it right there. We see people come and go all the time. There's There are people who come out and they they express their uh, expertise. I am a professional. I've been doing this for 50 years. And, and then you look back at it and you try to understand, where did this guy come from? If he's been doing this for 50 years, where... But, where are he? Yeah, where at? With who? Have you written beside I <laughs> lean against a tree? You know, what, there's got to be something out there that that says that you're like that, and um, and those of us who've been in the industry for all these years, for decades, we we know most of those people. You know, and most of the people out there that, that are professionals, and we have a mutual respect for us, for each other. It's all of us have done hard dirt time, and um, we we struggled with cold nights with long periods without food we've we've gone without water you know we felt the ticks and the mosquitoes and all the other things that come with it and um and somehow we make it to the top we come out alive and feeling a little bit stronger for all the agony we went through but we we learned something from those agonies you know
1: yeah absolutely in fact you and i share a common agony only yours was much worse than mine and that was accidentally eating the wrong mushroom we both managed to pull that one off but You seem to have a much harsher reaction to that than I did. I just felt really bad and threw up a few times and saw some sparkling lights, and I thought that part was actually kind of cool. I woke up the next day pretty dehydrated, but other than that, it was a, a mild experience. Yours was much rougher. I, I, I read your article about that, and I felt your pain quite literally. <laughs> and, and, but I do, I do think it's something simple like that that keeps a little bit of humility in, in the survival industry, that no matter how much you think you know, and, and if I was going to pick a guy to go out and pick mushrooms with, you would be the guy I'd go do it with. Anybody can make a mistake. Anybody can get one false moral in with the morals, and next thing you know, you're, uh, you're, uh, you're hitting the eye of a needle at 50 yards from the back end.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. I'm not much on mushrooms anymore. Oh, yeah. that. Uh, that was uh, And you know what? I made that mistake because I was stupid. Uh, we were cutting those things for the camera, and so the camera could get a better view of how they looked. I cut them in a direction that I normally don't cut them. If you cut them in one way, you could you could identify that they're a false morale. If okay. you cut them in another direction, they just look like every other mushroom. You really can't tell. But anyway, the camera was looking at it a certain way, and I didn't even spot that this one particular one that we were working on was uh, <laughs> not a good one. <laughs> 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 and it, was, it was one of the most amazing experiences. I learned all about thrust
1: factors. About what? Thrust Factor. Oh, Thrust Factor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's, let's segue off of that one for a minute. I mean, we've been talking about some of the people that write for you and, and folks that we know in the industry here, but I think you found probably something that I found as well. A lot of folks that have no aspirations of writing like a full book or putting out movies or anything are, are often very, very skilled people, and both of us are uh, gifted with having people like this in our forums and they put out some some of the posts that they put on our forum uh, or your forum. It's just like you look at it and go, wow, somebody could package this up as an ebook, this one post, and sell it for 20 bucks, and no one would complain. So there's a lot of talent out there. And your magazine, Survival Quarterly, you actually take open submissions uh, from anybody that wants to submit a, a, an article for consideration, right?
0: That's correct. Yeah, we have a, a location there on the website at survivalq.com where they can uh, see what our submission guidelines on and are and where to send those submissions. We don't, of course, guarantee that they're all going to make it in. We've got a limited amount of space. We want to make sure that each of the topics as we go through them is covered properly. Um, just, just to take a, a step back here for a minute, I mentioned this is a serial um, magazine. And the first issue, it's easy to, to determine what's going to be in the next issue because it follows our video series. It's, it's first, it's fire. Then it's shelter. Then it's survival kits, the one I'm working on now, survival kits. Um, And the next one after that is is, um, uh, navigation. And it's going to go through following exactly along that order. So if somebody has specific skills in an area, I'd love to hear about it. You know, survival kits is pretty well covered right now. We've got some um, primitive survival kits, you know, caveman style, as well as information about more extensive kits and from the suppliers and some gear reviews and things that – make it all make sense. But the next issue after this one uh, will be about navigation. So if anybody's got specific skills about primitive navigation techniques, you know, we're, we're happy to.
1: So you'd probably it. be open to having someone, instead of going ahead and writing an article and determ- you know, uh, and submitting it, and then it either flies or plops, you'd be open to queries as well. Someone send you a synopsis, this is what it would be about. You know, do you think this would work a- 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 like that and determining whether or not that person's a good fit?
0: Yes, Absolutely. Very cool. There's only room for uh, about thirteen really good articles, good sized articles in each of the magazines. Mm-hmm. So we have to we have to be careful of that we we don't step on each other's toes. Like uh, your work here, nobody's going to be doing what you do. And um, then we've got Jeff in there who's doing a lot of the economics, called preponomics, I think is what we're calling it, um, talking about some of the economic things that he's more familiar with. I know you are too. I know you. Sure. No, no.
1: No. No problem. But like, yeah. folks, to give you an idea why you need to, to subscribe to Survival Quarterly, in this next issue on kits, the the article I'm putting together for Ron is on uh, a survival kit for guerrilla gardening and uh, and foraging. Uh, so I mean, that's that's something I've really not ever seen anybody put together, and I can't really get credit for it, even though I'm going to write the article. It was your it was your kind of you, you know you your direction you gave me this time, and that's. That's unique, and I think that's what really is very cool about Survival Quarterly. Is we bring all of these professionals together, and we come up with unique ways of taking new looks at old concepts.
0: Exactly, exactly. And we want to turn that stone over again. Sometimes there's something missing, or something has grown on the other side of the stone while we're examining the front. You know, um, I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but sometimes I think about articles in these in these magazines. as, do you know what pilgrimites are?
1: I know exactly what Helgramites are. They're great bait for uh, smallmouth bass.
0: That's right, exactly. You find <laughs> them underneath uh, rocks on inflowing streams and
1: things like that, right? They kind of look like that worm that they put in <laughs> that dude's <laughs> ear in Star Trek in uh, Star Trek exactly. Two. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Okay.
0: <laughs> anyway. anyway, I Go just, just got interrupted there. Um, the um, Helgramite is. Uh, you, know, you flip over a rock, you look at it. You know, ah, I don't know how come I here? And then you come back five hours later and you flip over the same rock, and there's one there. Uh, information tends to do that because it grows on information that other people have given. I, I don't think I'm explaining this very well. Um, <laughs> you, know, you go, you get. Oh, hey, there's an idea. You know, you, you, your brain works on other people's ideas. Sure. So here's another application or another way of doing something. And we'd like people to come up with alternative ways of doing. An old thing.
1: And often what we see is somebody puts out one idea, somebody puts out another idea, and those two ideas to the authors or to the originators seem very independent, and a third party that's not emotionally attached to either one of them immediately sees the bridge between the two and brings them together. And that's, that's really something that's cool. And I think when you get people of the caliber you've assembled together, that starts to happen on its own. I think that's what we see in our forums too all the time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Every time I'm over there, uh, you guys have always got some kind of really cool information going on. And I like the way that threads digress, too. You know, there's it's the digressions that are often the, the food for other posts that are going to come down the line.
1: Absolutely. And, um, you know, what I'd like to kind of do now, though, just for fun, I'd like to switch gears a little bit here. And I get like 157,000 million questions a day from people. <laughs> And I get some common ones that I get, like, over and over again. And even if I've answered it six times in the past, I'll, you know, get it into a show again eventually, um, because if it's still being asked, and it's important. But my view is kind of along the lines of what we were thinking, different people have different perspectives based on based on where they're coming from, where they live, their timelines, their histories. So I'd like to throw a few of, like, the most common questions that I get from my audience at you. And let you feel them, and let people get kind of maybe an alternative view of something that I've talked about before. If that'd be okay,
0: absolutely. You know, it's kind of
1: scary, but I'll go for it. <laughs> okay, not be scary. It's <laughs> to be scared. of yeah, yeah.
0: Here's the Helgramite. Flip that stone over.
1: <laughs> All right, <laughs> hey, let's see if we find a hell. We'll find a uh, a handful of mites with this one because this is this is the big one that I get probably six times a day, uh, and everyone gets tired of answering this question, but yet it keeps getting answered, argued about, discussed around campfires. And that's the uh, the one gun question. Uh, so if you could have one gun and one gun only for survival, hunting, self defense, etc., no cheating, no twos, no multi-barrel sets. You got to pick one thing. What would it be, and why? <laughs> Sucks, don't it? Okay. Well, hey, uh, yeah. welcome to my world. <laughs> okay, I but I, my answer isn't going to make anybody happy.
0: But it would be the answer that I would actually uh, follow up on. I take a .22 caliber rifle. Okay. And uh, that's it. I could kill anything that's reasonable on this planet, not on this planet, in the areas I'm likely to be. And that's sure. If I could take down a deer, if I had to, I could take down a bear. It's going to be a long-range shot through the eyeball, but it's going to happen. <laughs> uh, they're quiet. I can carry lots and lots of ammunition. They don't take up a lot of space. Um, the recoil, of course, is negligible. You could set them up as traps if you have to, so you've got a, you know, a trigger system just cap them where they are. Um, that's pretty much it. I, I don't need a lot of power. Uh, accuracy is where it's at for me, and I shoot a lot.
1: You know what? I don't think that there's going to be a lot of people actually unhappy with that answer. That's, uh, that's, that's pretty well uh, one of the main things that come up when that discussion's had uh, in our community. And it's, it's, it's always been, for me, it's either been that or the shotgun. And I've always ended up siding with you on this and it always comes down to the amount of ammunition that can be carried. If, if I'm going to be out for two days, and I know it's only two days, and I can carry an assortment of 20-gauge uh, you know, or 12-gauge shells, I can make a big case for that. But if you're going to be out and you don't know how long, and the, the question is, is that closed-ended, being able to carry 1,000 rounds and not really have that much weight on you is a, a, a tremendous advantage, right?
0: Absolutely. And you're always going to find ammunition for the twenty-two. You know, with the different cartridges for it, you've got the, you know, the low, slow 68 or 70 grain bullets, those uh, sniper specials, subsonics, yep. yeah, big, heavy slugs going downrange very slowly. Uh, you, you've got all kinds of alternatives with them, but as you say, you, if you've got a box of 12 gauge and a 500 rounds of 22, there's really no comparison if you're going to be out for a while.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm actually 100% in sync with you on that. That's kind of cool. Um. Let's take another one. This is the other one that I get different versions of. But when we look at, you know, potential threats, and I talk to people all the time about how to prepare for disaster and starting out with the most likely thing is the small thing that your neighbor doesn't even care, like you lost your job or a family member gets really sick or, God forbid, dies. And then we go to the other end of the spectrum with, like, the world-ending disasters where you might as well drink a beer on the roof like a giant comet hitting the planet. Um, but out toward that other spectrum, there are some things out there that are, are really bad, some, some you know, society-changing, if not society-ending events, pandemic, economic collapse, things like that that, that you know, not necessarily are going to happen tomorrow, but, but you have to be honest and realistic. say they could. Which one of those do you think is, the, the I guess, the biggest or most legitimate major, like, national level or larger threat uh, that people should be uh, maybe uh, at least paying attention to?
0: I think I'm probably always going to go with the economic threat. We're probably facing hyperinflation here in the next year or two. And uh, there's just been so many things that have been done wrong around this planet. Um, and there are a lot of forces that are acting to to damage the economy of our planet. You know, and I don't even mean just the oil spill here in the Gulf, there's, there's people who are actually out there purposely attempting to disrupt things, I'm sure. Um, that would probably be the, the biggest threat that I can see as a more or less for sure. You know, it's going to happen. You're going to suck.
1: Yeah, and, yeah. Um,
0: you know, it's, it's a good time to have a uh, have a mortgage because um, your house is still going to cost you so many dollars, but the dollars will be cheaper, so it'll be easier to pay the thing off.
1: Sure. You know, sure. that kind of
0: stuff. But um, there's there are a lot of destabilizing influences out there that can create... Um, like a domino effect and I I concern myself a lot with the Middle East with the the availability of nuclear weapons as an example Um, and some of the other high order weapons the there's stuff going on out there that we don't know about and of course everybody knows we don't know right sure and um, Pakistan and India perhaps you know they might cook off North Korea they just did a little thing with, with a torpedo Um, and uh, we're still waiting for some kind of response to that. There are things like that happening.
1: Yeah, and on the nuclear threat, Ron, what do you think about this? I've always thought about all the hyperbole about, you know, this nation's trying to make a nuclear weapon, and this one made, you know, North Korea made one, but it's a little one and all. But when the Soviet Union collapsed, there's ungodly numbers of of weapons, both nuclear and chemical and biological, that uh, have just kind of, Disappear and you know you don't necessarily have to build something if if you can buy it. So that's a, a, a clear legitimate threat. And we don't have to have you know the you know day after experience the, the old '80s movie for nuclear uh, detonations to be a real problem globally, right? Absolutely,
0: um, and I'm glad you brought that up. When the when the Soviet Union went down, you could imagine if you were a, um, a captain in charge of a tactical nuke squad someplace in the middle of nowhere. You know, you've got a big 155 or better um, gun there, and you've got a couple of nukes, and you know that you're going to be going back home to the home country, and when you get there, you don't have a job. Your family won't have food. You won't have a place to live. No more of those nice places on the Black Sea. All you've got is the inventory that you're in control of, and losing one of these devices isn't going to be a big deal, particularly when you're going to be getting several million dollars from the right people. Yeah, You're already in the right environment. So. Yeah, I I can see that as a very likely scenario. I'm sure that a number of these things have disappeared. Um, Now, I've I've heard stories that these things have a lifespan. You know that there's only so many years that they're actually going to be able to be uh, set off. But I understand also that they could be renewed somehow. Sure. uh, You know, so there's there's probably all these businesses working on the dark side that, um, uh, whose job it is to recondition nuclear warheads. I wouldn't be surprised if they weren't planted all over this country.
1: You know. Yeah, and it's 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 really kind of scary to what could be out there. One of the things I know from a, from a first-hand piece of knowledge isn't about anything going anywhere, but there's the reality that you're talking about there. I'm very good friends with a gentleman named Valery Asunov, who was a, a member of the KGB when the Soviet Union fell apart. And he immediately left and ended up uh, immigrating to the United Kingdom. And I asked him why he did it so quickly, and he said, I was KGB. I had two choices. Join the new Russian mafia... Or leave, because no one else would have me and my life was in danger the minute that that was over. So that means that there was a lot of people that had to make choices like that. Right, And that's, that's kind of, when a nation has that much capability and the people that are in key roles in it uh, you have to make those choices. God knows what choices they made. So that's, that's an interesting uh, rock full of Helgramites you turned over there, Ron. Uh, <laughs> You've got yeah. me a little bit worried uh, on, on some of that, some of the things maybe I haven't hadn't considered as deeply before. So I guess thank you for that. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I didn't want to worry you there, but there's yeah. always the blue sky stuff. You know, that comet yeah. could be coming.
1: Yeah. Um going to hit Saturn, did not it? Uh, it one I worry about a lot, and I thought you would have brought up, since you seem to get sick every time I said a uh, oh, an interview for you, is pandemic. What are your thoughts on pandemic and, you know, what, what what that would be like if we had, you know, something like the 1918 flu only, I don't know, twice as bad?
0: Oh, well, first of all, it would suck. And I <laughs> secondly, I know I'd catch it just about the time you would call me. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is about it. Every time I... I know there's a call coming in. I'm coming down with something. Um, it's, it's a huge, huge threat. There's so many things out there that are, are potentially gonna be dropped. there's little things like anthrax and stuff, you know, they mm-hmm. call that a minor thing. Ricine or ricin, I guess some people call it. That's, um, an incredibly toxic, uh, organic. You're familiar with that, I, I suppose.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately not very difficult to manufacture. Um, exactly. You grow exactly. castor, castor beans, you can, you can pull that off
0: right you'll probably die doing it if you don't have the right kind of stuff but you know, you could definitely do it um, and that, that's that been a popular poison for years uh, and those are just some of the standard ones the, as far as the biological things I, you know, I don't even know what they might have designed there was an interesting book um, I can't remember the name of it but it was a, essentially it was a story about a, a plague that was released uh, in Ireland I think it's called the white plague that killed only women it was Uh, specific for women, and uh, the principle was that the guy who invented this stuff did it because his wife and children were killed in an IRA bombing or something. Wow. And um, so he invented it, and of course it went past the borders and ultimately covered the entire world. So there's a lot of really angry men and a lot of dead women.
1: Yeah, and about I guess it was about eight years ago, we had the first realization of a thing over in Indonesia called Nymph, which was a disease transmitted by fruit bats, that were uh, drinking sap out of these trees these natives were harvesting, and like 75% of the people that got that died. And I guess what really should drive the point home about that is, you know, 1996, no one even knew that existed. So there's always something potentially new out there with uh, a high morbidity uh, behind it. now that we've gotten depressed, let's and we talked about economic collapse. What are your thoughts on gold and silver, or gold and/or silver? I should say, is uh, you think it's a good idea maybe to have a little bit of that?
0: Yes, there's um, uh, we, we do gold and silver, and um, of course we don't keep it on site, so don't anybody get any ideas. Um, <laughs> but I'm into I, I like uh, silver a lot because it's easier. To, to use on a day-to-day basis. If you've got a bar of gold, it's nice. You can look at a huge bar and say, well, that's worth a whole lot of money. But you go down to the market, and you want to buy a loaf of bread, you, you're in trouble.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And,
0: uh, so we do like small sil- solid silver coins. Uh, 50 cent pieces are, are pretty, uh, pretty friendly for us. And, um, and that sort of thing. So we, we keep that stuff around. Uh, other things that are important are prescription drugs that, um, that might be difficult to obtain in an emergency. Specifically, things like um, doxycycline and uh, ampicillin and erythromycin and all those things. Now, those are those are nice to have. to Keep them in the refrigerator. They have a lifespan on, so you'll have to restock. But that's kind of a good trade item. Is this what we're talking about? Trade items and yeah, artists, so. yeah,
1: yeah. Well, that and, I mean, that's an interesting thing you bring up there because one of the things I get is an objection from the audience once in a while is, well, you know, you're better off forgetting the silver and sticking to beans, bullets, band-aids, and that type of thing because during that initial disaster, no one's going to want silver. They're going to want stuff. And and I guess my response has always been, during the, like a, a catastrophe, that may even be true, but there's always what's called aftermath and rebuilding. And if we took like a 1,000 people and threw them on an island somewhere and made sure they could eat for a year so that they didn't kill each other immediately and left them and we came back in five years, there'd be something... Uh, akin to a society going on there. There'd be new children. There'd be schools. There'd be professions. That society will always eventually try to put itself back together. And if I meet you and I go run, uh, I got some uh, some dried beef, and you go, I'd like some of that. And I go, Well, great. What do you got? And you say to me, I have uh, I have some honey. And I go, Dude, I got lots of honey. I don't need any honey. Where are we at now? We need some kind of common agreed upon means of exchange that when I take an ounce of silver from you, I know that, well, since what I really want is wheat, roughly how much wheat I can get, so now I'm actually bartering the the beef with you for the wheat with, you know, Dave, and, and that's that's really what money really is anyway.
0: Right, yeah, that's the reason for it, you know, if you were traveling from the Byzantine Empire to some other place, you would have money, and money was the means of exchange. You can't very well carry along a... Barrel of honey. And you're going to some <laughs> other place, you know. Yeah, has something that's transportable, I and mean, you if be hang around your neck, and you're on your way. But um, absolutely, that's why we keep small stuff like silver. We have gold for larger things. Um, the other stuff is is just things that we see the possibility of a shortage. You know, if there's a big earthquake or whatever the hell it is that happens, and the stores are closed or you can't get this stuff, we have it. Sure, and, uh, and we can help people out.
1: So you're kind of on me with me on that. It's not silver and gold to the exclusion of the other supplies. It's no, silver and gold in addition to these other supplies because we we actually well you know part of it is the disaster, but the other part is the flat out inflation hedge because our money could literally become worthless in the next twenty years. I think that's definitely a possibility. And what happens as a country rebuilds is a currency revaluation. And generally speaking, if you if you don't go off into some commodity with your currency, you get screwed really bad. Um, yep. You ask those Germans from about 1925 how that works out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, um,
0: uh, if you think about it as a triangle, instead of just saying that it's one thing to the exclusion of other things, uh, when you build a fire, you know, there's a fire triangle of air, heat, and fuel. Correct. Uh, in economic terms, we've got a triangle as well. We, we've got support things like, uh, well, we've got money. We've got health, and we've got food. Let's let's call those the three corners of the triangle. Uh, you need all three of those to make yourself into a reasonable barter uh, critter. You know, you have to have the kinds of things that are going to help health. You've got to have to you, know, you have, to have food to, to supply life and um, money to make your way into other ones of the uh, into other supplies. You know, to replenish those other corners.
1: And I guess what we can see that kind of that kind of shows that is every time there's a disaster somewhere, the you know the, the tsunami a few years ago, the the Haitian earthquake, the Chilean earthquake. Uh, what do they What do they always ask for? Money, food, comfort items, and, and health items. I mean, that's right. that's you know, and the money, of course, is generally used to provide those other things. Right. And, and that's, that's what we see in every single disaster. So uh, instead of maybe relying on Susan Sarandon to get it for you on TV, maybe <laughs> it'd be a good idea if you have a little bit of that Taking care of for yourself. Switching gears so we can, we can get wrapping up here. Uh, the other one, what do you look for in a knife? What's the, what's the perfect knife? I, no, I didn't say survival knife because I, I don't even like that term, honestly, other than for marketing. Uh, but when it comes down to just a good knife for the bush, what are you looking for?
0: Okay, I, I, again, it's one of those answers that people wouldn't expect. I like big knives. Generally, I like a big chopper because I do certain kinds of things with it. But if I have a, if I was grabbing my, my survival kit and on my way out, it would have a good Swiss Army knife in it, and of course the 22. Sure. Uh, but between those two things, I could do whatever I need. The Swiss Army knife with a saw. I use, I like the Ruckmaster one. It doesn't have that telephone in it and all the other crap that they come with. <laughs> the telephone. <laughs> you know, it's got, it's got the basic stuff it's got a saw a screwdriver, knife blade bottle opener, that kind of thing. You don't need a lot of crap on it. It's also the bigger locking blade on it, yeah, so I could whittle things. I can make the kind of stuff that I can need down the line, so I could whittle a spear, uh, kill an animal with that or take something with it, uh, dig something out of the ground, whatever, and then obtain more materials until ultimately I rebuild whatever it is that i I initially needed or trade for it the um so I would probably go with a good Swiss army knife or something like that. And um, as a secondary knife, it would probably be a big chopper.
1: Gotcha. The,
0: gotcha. You know, probably with a 9 inch blade or better. And, uh, not a heavy one. A lot of people are seeing these giant choppers out there now with a quarter inch spine. You know, oh, it's a quarter inch steel. Well, yeah, it's good that it's quarter inch steel, but have you ever stressed a knife strong enough to break a, hard enough rather, to break a quarter inch steel? I mean, that's a pretty, pretty aggressive work. And, uh, you can literally drive a tank over something like that. And unless it's tempered incorrectly, it'll just bound right back. So a 3 16th inch spine, um, 9 to 10 inch blade. Good handle, comfortable handle. The interface between the knife and, and the user is the handle. And, uh, there's a lot of these really fantastic looking handles. It's got places for your fingers and stuff, you know. The fact is, when you get out there and you're chopping on something or working with it, a lot of the, the grooves and extra, uh, bumps on these, end up being places where they cause friction with your hand, and that causes discomfort and ultimately blisters, and that takes your hand out of operation.
1: Cool. Cool. Yeah, I agree with you. You've actually got a a pretty cool knife like that, don't you, available at your store?
0: Right, we do. We we sold all out of them. It's called the Hoodlum, and uh, it's a blade that I started working on in various iterations for several years now, probably a decade actually. It uh, weighs, oh, God, what is 16 ounces. It's a 10-inch blade, um, and we put transducers on the original design of the blade and worked out a hollow cavity in the handle that acts as a harmonic dampener for the blade itself. Because when you're chopping, if you feel vibration in your hand as you're chopping, that's lost energy. Energy that should be expressing itself on the wood is not doing that. It's expressing itself.
1: Being reflected into your body, Absolutely.
0: Exactly. So we want to capture that. So we created a kind of a resonance chamber in the thing, and um, it's, uh, it's fantastic. Everybody's handled it. it. says, I cannot believe a knife is big. Is that light?
1: So you're on back order now on those? Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we, we made 100 of them, and they went out just like that. So we're, we're going to have to put together another batch. Shortly, we're going to have a, uh, um, a pre-order system set up on our store, and then we'll go back and have another batch made.
1: Very cool so hey let me let me wrap up with the last one I had for you today um, I, I get questions from the newbies the deer in the headlight stuff a lot of times saying you know what's I, I just figured this out, you know, and they're freaking out, and I always kind of pull them back off the ledge and go, don't freak out, you've got some time, let's 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 start putting a plan together, but, you know, I try to give people that, that first, those first few baby steps, so to speak, of what they could do, What would you say that person's just woke up, realized they're totally exposed, and it's usually a critical event, you know, they, they, got, they saw a newscast on the flu's going to kill them, and... And then they heard you on here dying uh, a year ago with flu or whatever, and they're like, "Damn it, I got to do something." What would you say? Like, those first two or three, four baby steps are in getting somewhat of a preparedness uh, lifestyle going on.
0: You know, we always recommend the same thing. It's a really good question, it's, and as you said, it's a common one. It's something that um, that that's bound to occur. Where do I start? Because there's so much. You know, it's like. If you were living your entire life inside and suddenly you went outside and you looked at all around, you go, wow, this place is big. Where do I start? You know, where do I go first? We, um, we always recommend that you start with something that you can do, which is copy canning. Get some food into the house. If you buy one can of stew, buy two cans, put one on the shelf, eat the other one. Next time you get stew, buy two cans, put one on the shelf, eat the other one. So that you're just slowly building up some kind of a, um, of a supply cabinet. And the reason behind that is, one, is it gets you off your ass. You know, so many people go, oh, I'm going to order a bunch of MREs and some dehydrated food. You know, and then they bullshit themselves for hours or days or weeks or months, and ultimately it never gets done. You go to the market every day or every week or whatever, get something. Put it in storage. Don't screw around. Now you got something. You lose your job, you got food, all right? Something simple like losing your job or your paycheck gets lost so now you've got food, and you keep at that until you've got a supply that's going to keep you going for a few months. And that doesn't take a lot. doesn't cost a lot of money. You could go with the, you know, the cheap uh, supermarket brands, that kind of stuff. Yep. And so you could buy cans of, uh, I've seen cans of corn for $0.10. Cents. Sure. I've got to admit, you know, this is probably meal corn, but it's still food.
1: Absolutely. You
0: grind that stuff up, make masa cakes and all kinds of other things. Sure. So it's not like you're wasting time.
1: And the way you're recommending it is what we say all the time. You store, store what you eat. So you're actually storing food you're going to eat anyway. You're, it's like, I, I don't know, Ron. I always look at it like when people say, well, I don't have too much extra food around or whatever, when they're not getting this at first. And it's like, when you go to the gas station, do you put five bucks in or do you fill the tank? Right. You know, I mean, and if I the tank was it. bigger, you'd put more in. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're broke, because like you're talking about the guy that says one day I'm going to get some MREs, and that reminded me of like the guy we knew back in high school. You know, everybody knew this guy that had the car with like six different colors of paint on it. Yeah. Uh, he used to walk around, with, and I had like one Craiger mag, and the other three were stock wheels. And he's like, "Man, one day when I get some money, and, and you know, it, buying a case of MREs is expensive. Buying a pallet of them is really expensive. And that's fine if you want to go to that level, but to get started." It's hard to make an excuse for not buying an extra can of corn, an extra can of stew, an extra can of uh, soup and what have you. That can be done very painlessly.
0: Exactly. And you could even start that process up with another baby step. You could say, okay, today I'm going to write down everything that I eat out of our kitchen. So you, um, you go in and you get a can of corn. You write down one can of corn. You write down the day. So you make coffee in the morning. I made some coffee. Write down coffee. And you go through your day writing down the things that you eat, and pretty soon you're going to find out that each day is pretty much a reflection of the one before, minor changes. That tells you what your core pieces are. You're going to have to get coffee. You're going to have to get, to get to drink cream. You're going to need some kind of uh, creamer, sugar, blah, 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 you know, whatever it is to support the things that you habituate on. Because habituation, if you can satisfy that, it takes a fear out of this crap.
1: You know? Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. You've changed over. You've been eating prime rib and... Now you have to eat MREs. You're going into shock. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's said that it was
1: really good when I bought it.
0: Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. It, it, you know, MREs are good
1: if you... if you. Not the, the omelet thing? with ham. That's not good at all. No, no, no. no. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Some I'll of them are you. good, right? But I'll tell you, folks, a, a cold egg with Spam chunks out of a foil bag, that's never good.
0: That's never good. No, that's... I, I could just that one going
1: down my throat. Ugh, that was my Ugh. first one ever back in, back when I was in Honduras. And, uh, uh, you know, we, 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 we drew an MRE that evening, and I was starving. I opened it up, and I smushed that nasty thing up out of there like an ice cream bar. And I was starving, and I took a huge bite out of it. And as uh, hungry as I was, one bite solved my hunger problem. Back in little <laughs> pouch, I'll try a different variety tomorrow. So we got the food taken care of. Real quick, what are a few other things that person can do that's just woken up?
0: Oh, well, that, that would be a, a beginner. Of course, you take care of the food, um, your shelter stuff. You know, if the, uh, if the fan, so to speak, you would probably have shelter taken care of. They're not going to take your home away from sure. you. Sure. You know, nobody's coming in to foreclose on your house know, if you don't make your payments.
1: Sure, but you have uh, some, you have some in- interesting ideas on water that's real simple, right? Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, uh, are you talking about the water that's already stored in your home? The yep, properties?
1: the people don't even realize it's there.
0: All right, water heaters. Uh, home, apartment, or anything else, a water heater is a great source of water. However, you need to consider, if, there, if for instance, let's use an earthquake or a tornado as an example. If it's torn up the mains somehow there's going to be a a general suction on the system, and that's going to tend to draw the water out of your tank and back into the system where it's going to be spread out on the ground. So if you have a home, you want to put an anti-siphon valve on the incoming line of your water heater, and that will stop the water from going back out into the system should the pressure drop. Um, You know, it's it's an inexpensive thing you could pick up at any Home Depot, and you should have on there anyway.
1: And it just takes a resource that's already there, and it just makes it more usable.
0: That's right. It keeps the water in your tank where you're going to need it. You're not going to have gas anyway, so just turn that hot water off. You don't want that burning. And uh, then you just tap the water from the uh, from the tank at the tap at the bottom. One other thing about that water heater, um, a lot of people don't know it. If you have a home or you've got your own water heater, have you ever cleaned your water heater?
1: Yeah. A lot of people say, what do you mean, clean? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know well, you
0: know, water doesn't look clean. If you've ever seen a swimming pool right after it's been filled. It's filled with sediment and junk and cloudy crap and oh my god things that float with teeth and it's in your tank and uh, what you need to do is not worry about what's coming in but what's already been in there so that sediment's been piling up on the bottom of your tank and it decreases the efficiency of the water heater it also clogs the thing up so you might have two or three inches of silt down there depending on where you live which decreases of course capacity of the tank and all kinds of other stuff but get that out of there once a year, put a hose on it, uh, turn on the mixture sure the incoming tank line is full on, your water is turned off, open up the uh, valve, and let the water roar through, and that stuff will break up and fall apart and run on out.
1: Very cool. Uh, what are your thoughts on having some basic uh, a basic plan, just some documentation? I mean, that's free, but knowing where you would go if you had to leave, how you the routes you would take that you had to get there, who you know, contact information for people that you would call to let them know that you had to go, because not every disaster affects everybody. Some of them just affect you know your area.
0: You know, there's a there's a great article on our website at survival dot com. If you go in there to our library, you're going to see uh, a couple of um, of articles by Karen Hood that's got information about how to prepare, what you should put on those notes. Notes you'd put on your refrigerator as an example if you have to uh, evacuate your home. Uh, a refrigerator is a good place to store notes because it's, it's protected pretty much from the environment. You know, if the roof blows off, your refrigerator is still going to be fairly dry inside. And uh, so, we like to recommend that people put emergency notes there, but always keep maps in your car. I mean maps. I don't mean GPS. Yep. The GPS can go out and they could turn off the satellites. Anything can happen. You want maps, and you want a good understanding of where you're likely to go.
1: Very cool. So, hey, man, I think we we we've really stretched out the hour here a little bit, but uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's always great having you on. I'd I like to, you know, let people know uh, they can get your DVDs, they can get your well, they can back order, I guess, your blade or wait for it to come out again, and all your other cool stuff at survival.com. I want to remind folks that are in the Members Support Brigade, Ron's been good to us there. Uh, all of his DVDs, there's a special discount code at 10% off uh, for all the DVDs in the Members Brigade area for you guys to do that. And I'll tell you what, I, I learned a ton uh, watching Ron's DVDs. I've got a stack of about 20 of them here on my uh, on my bookshelf, and I've, I've been through, I think, 19 of the 20 so far. Uh, and there's some great stuff there, so consider that and uh ron i appreciate having you on today you got any final thoughts for folks just about uh preparedness in general or or why it's good to have the skills that we talk about or anything like that
0: um you know i think if people are listening to your podcast they're already heads up they're they're already aware of what they need to do you've been doing a great job 452 shows is that what you said
1: yeah it's 452 you're number 452
0: that's amazing I mean, that's an incredible body of work jack and i'm you know, it, it, I'm proud to be able to say that you're my friend. It's a, it's a real honor to know you. And uh, all the information that you put out to people is just astonishing. Because I've listened to your shows. I've gone through these things listening listened to them. And, oh, God, I didn't know that. And every time I listen to want to come away with some little bit of information. So what I'm saying is, listen to Jack's shows, folks. Download them. Get on.
1: Well, thanks. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't expect that there at the end. I do appreciate you saying that, Ron. And, and thanks for being with us here today. And folks, I'll, I'll wrap up now. And you can hear the music playing in the background. Remember uh, the reason we have that song, "The Revolution," is used because what you do matters. Uh, it matters for you. It matters for your family. It matters for everyone uh, that you come into contact with. And no one affects you uh, more than you. And nothing, no choice in life affects you more than the choices that you make every day. Uh, I, I'm sure. Ron would agree, and he's worked a long time to help pass these skills and knowledge on. So uh, make sure you check out his site after today's episode. And with that, this has been Jack Spierco and Ron Hood with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life when jobs get tough, or even if they don't. Let me
0: show you a better way.
1: How do you